Good morning, everyone. I invite you to uh, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 17. Start with. I want to notice especially um, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, earlier, just a few verses ahead of, there, of, of verse 9, he talks about cursed people and he talks about blessed people. In verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord, and how his way will not prosper. But in verse 7, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is, for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and will grow and flourish. And then he says, the heart is deceitful. And figuring out what's going on with the heart and where our hearts are has a lot to do whether uh, with which category we end up in, whether it's uh, under that curse that mentioned in verse 5, or the blessing of verse 7. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The deceitful there is telling us that the heart, the fallen heart, is crooked, and it is um, it is trying to, or it's in such a condition that it will trip us up. Uh, the Jacob's name, supplanter, uh, deceitful. It's, uh, that supplanter comes from that root word that uh, is mentioned here. Deceitful. The heart is deceitful. It will trip us up. And desperately wicked. Other translations say corrupt or incurable, incurably sick. It's not so much emphasizing the, the wickedness, but it is wretched because of the evil in it. And it is in a desperate and helpless condition. And who can know it? That's the question. Who can know it? This heart hides from itself. Its owner doesn't even know his heart. He can easily, easily believe that he's in better shape than he really is. And he can delude himself into thinking that he's stronger than he really is. This heart is full of, of evil devices. Verse 10 says that I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins. 
even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. So the Lord sees the heart of man, and he discerns, he knows everything that's there. We're not, we're not unfamiliar with what this verse is. These verses are talking about, uh, neither are we any streets. Most of us here, as Christians, we struggle against the uh, problem of our heart. Sometimes we're victorious. Sometimes uh, we're defeated and need forgiveness. And the problem, of course, is sin and sinfulness. I want to review this morning some things that the Bible teaches us about sin. And as we uh, go through this, I, I hope it will just uh, be a refresher to us of, of uh, what sin is, and that it will stir in my heart, our hearts, a greater horror of sin, but also a deeper gratefulness for the only answer for sin. The only hope for deliverance, and that is Jesus, whose shed blood cleanses and redeems us. I want to start with a with a sin that the Bible talks about, that Jesus talks about, that is unforgivable. And we talk a lot, the Bible teaches a lot, Jesus taught about the mercy of God and how grateful we are for the mercy of God and for forgiveness for sin. But there is a sin, Jesus said, that is unforgivable. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus talked about this. We'll look in Matthew 12 and verse 32. Where, well, what had happened here before, Jesus had cast out a, a demon. Uh, the story begins in verse 22. There was a man brought to him with a devil, and he was blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And the people were amazed about this. And the Pharisees heard it, and they made a charge. I mean, it was rather a remarkable thing, a very remarkable thing that Jesus had done. And they said, this fellow cast out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Now I want to get to uh, where of what Jesus said about the unpardonable sin in verses 32 and 33. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, when the Pharisees looked at 
um, what had happened, they just could not bring themselves to admit or consider that this possibly, that this Jesus who did this miracle was possibly from God. And so they decided, they charged, they told folks that he had cast out this devil and he cast out devils by the prince of devils, Beelzebub, Satan. But Jesus pointed out in the verses following in responding to them, he said, logically, this does not make sense. It doesn't make sense that this would be so. For Beelzebub would be fighting against himself. That wouldn't make any sense. And further, he said, let's be fair, if your children, the exorcists among you, the Jewish exorcists, cast them out, who are they casting them out by? Surely you wouldn't say that they are casting demons out by the prince of demons. And then, having um, made a case that it wasn't from the devil, the devil's power that was driving the demons out, then it must be the Spirit of God. It must be God. And if so, if it is from God, then the kingdom of God is here. And you should be listening. And you should be acknowledging what this is showing. And if this is the Spirit of God at work, you should be thinking about which side are you on. And further, you need to be very careful with what you charge uh, the Holy Ghost with. For blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is not forgiven neither in this world or the next, he said. So, you would think that this would be, I mean, this is a very sobering thing to read, and for them to hear, you would think they would have taken this seriously and repent, but they didn't. Let's notice what they did do. They watched Jesus like hawks. For anything that they could see, that they could criticize him and condemn him for, in Matthew 15, they came to Jesus and asked, Why do your disciples not wash their hands as taught by the elders? They were offended at Jesus' teaching. In chapter 16, they demanded a sign from heaven. In uh, John 11, after Lazarus was resurrected, the Pharisees gathered their council together and they said, what do we do? What do we do? This man does many miracles. And if we leave him alone, everybody will believe on him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And they decided that Jesus must die. And they began laying plans to that end and giving orders that uh, if anyone learned where Jesus was at, they should inform them, inform the proper authority, 
And when large numbers of people began flocking to see Lazarus, they decided that Lazarus needed to die also. The Pharisees were getting discouraged. And that boosted the, uh, the uh, testimony of Lazarus, resurrection, people talking about it in John 12. Uh, that, that really boosted attendance for the, uh, when the triumphal entry happened. And the Pharisees were uh, just distressed about this. And they said, we're not getting anywhere. The whole world is following him. And we know the story and how Jesus was eventually arrested and bound and questioned rudely, cruelly. He was struck, he was accused falsely, and he was crucified, uh, not by the Jews, but because of their prosecution, persecution of him. They were just totally against Jesus and his ministry. And Jesus had said about them in Matthew 23 and 13, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. These uh, were people, these were the people, the kind of people that were in danger of committing the unpardonable sin. They were capable of that. They had attributed to Satan what was really the work of the Holy Spirit. They had opposed God. They opposed God's Son. They opposed God's message. And not only were they violently opposed themselves, they tried every way they knew to keep others from following them. And they cultivated fear among the common people. In John 7, 13, it says, Howbeit no man spake openly of him, Jesus, for fear of the Jews. And the parents of the man born blind, who was healed by Jesus, they were afraid to answer the Pharisees' question for fear that they would get kicked out of the synagogue. And in John 12, it says that many among the chief rulers believed on Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And after Jesus' um, crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate whether he could take the body of Jesus and bury it. And he was given permission. But you see, uh, just over and over, the fear that the people had of the Jews and uh, fear of identifying with Jesus or expressing any support or interest in Jesus. There is an unpardonable sin. Only God knows 
when that line is crossed. But from the uh, from what we see in the Pharisees, it would appear that this sin is more than a sin of the flesh or a, a single act that a act that a person simple act that a person would do. I believe it is more than an a verbal outburst or certain words that somebody would say out of anger or in a moment of confusion or whatever. And it's more than just uh, neglecting spiritual things, but it would appear that uh, one who has committed this sin, he, he appears to be a hardened, impenitent person who has over and over and over not only resisted God's Spirit in the face of great evidence or conviction has persistently rebelled against God in his heart, persistently spoken slanderously against God in the work of his Spirit, and has persistently fought against God and God's work in his own life and in the life the lives of others. In the Old Testament, there is a, a verse in number 15, verse 30. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Uh, the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, it is literally uh, sinning with an uplifted hand, like a fist against the sky, just belligerent, in defiance of God. In Job 15, he speaks of one who stretcheth out his hand against God and strengthens himself against the Almighty. Now, the unpardonable sin is not uh, forgiven because the blood of Christ is only effective to a certain point, and that it isn't adequate beyond that. And it's not that the mercy of God is limited, but in the life of such a person, there is a persistent rebelliousness and assault against the ministry of God and His Spirit that a line is crossed. And it should uh, it should make us uh, it should stir in us a horror that someone would when, when we hear anyone talking slanderously uh, and defiantly of God, of Christ, and of His Spirit, knowing that it's possible to commit this sin, it should not make us feel insecure, but it should make us more thankful for God's mercy and for the assurance that comes with with being his child, 
But there is an unpardonable sin. And Jesus talked of it. And so we mentioned it here. As well. Now just to... Just speaking of sins in general. That the earth is just... The world is just so filled with and has been ever since the fall. One theologian describes sin. Any thought, any word, any action, any omission or desire contrary to the law of God. Any thought or word or action, omission or desire that is contrary to the holiness of God. The Bible talks about some different kinds of sins. One is going against our conscience. In Romans 14, verse 23, He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith or conscience. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Speaking there about going against our conscience. That inner sense of right, what is right and what is wrong. And in James 4, 17, it talks about omission. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. There are, there are sins of ignorance. In the Old Testament, in the law, there was provision for those. Leviticus 5, verse 15, If a soul commit a trespass and a sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock, with thy estimation by shekels of silver, after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. And it would be forgiven them. That sin would be for, uh, covered. And in chapter 22 of Leviticus, if a man eateth the holy thing unwittingly, then he shall put the fifth part thereof unto it, and shall give it unto the priest with the holy thing. And it would be forgiven. And there are numbers of other examples like that uh, given. And in Psalm 19, verse 12, who can understand his error? Cleanse thou me from secret fault. And that's not sins done in secret, but it is sins that I'm unaware of, which, which we are so infected that we, uh, we come short in ways that we haven't become aware of. We confess specific sins to God, we're told to do that. 
We confess sinfulness, our sinfulness, just our uh, that old nature that we're dealing with. Falling short of God's standard of holiness. We're human, and whether we know it or not, uh, we fall short. Whether we recognize it or not, we fall short of God's standard of holiness. All unrighteousness is sin. First John five seventeen. The scriptures include several uh, categories of sins, lists of sins. First Corinthians six, verses nine and ten is one example. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor sorcerers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. In Galatians 5, beginning at verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, barrenness, emulation, wrath, strife, sedition, heresy, envying, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Another one is in Revelation 21, verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. Those are sinful acts. But clearly, beyond the actions, there's a heart issue. There is a state of sinfulness. And Jesus thought about this in Mark 7, uh, verses 21 through 23. For from within... Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adultery, fornication, murder, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. Every evil action, every evil Word, every evil thought comes from an evil heart. The fallen heart produces 
fallen fruit. And we are all saved, all affected, infected by the fall. In Romans 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man, referring to Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And it's more than a bad influence. The, the unredeemed have a corrupt, a selfish nature, uh, a tendency, even a determination to do their own way, contrary to God. And we are born with that. Jesus says that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now we could say that Disobedience to the greatest commandment is the root of all evil, and I think we'd be right. Any failure to love God or others perfectly leads man to thoughts and attitudes and deeds that are against God and God's holy ways. And sin separates man from God here and forever unless there's a change of heart, unless something is done. And we think that we, we tend to think as people, we tend to think of sin and bad in uh, terms of degrees. Adam and Eve sinned. They didn't follow instructions. When we read the story in Genesis, they didn't follow instructions. Uh, Hitler and Stalin and Saddam Hussein, they were monsters, murderers, mass murderers, and grossly wicked men. But to God, Adam and Eve were impure. All all sinners are impure and defiled. And God calls us to holiness. But sin, apart from the unpardonable sin which we were talking about at the beginning, sins are forgiven, are forgivable, I should say. And that's where the redeemed are. That's where we are by the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God through Christ. And the Catholics, I understand, teach there are venial sins and mortal sins. Venial sins are less serious, and they are pardoned by God without having to go to a priest to confess 
But mortal sins, evil thoughts, evil deeds, they must be confessed to a priest for forgiveness. And if somebody dies, um, and these sins are unconfessed, or there hasn't been the extreme unction which was somehow twisted out of the anointing with oil, then that person is damned. And I read somewhere that, um, I don't know whether all Catholics believe this way or not, but this says that technically a person is not dead for 45 minutes after their heart stops, which gives a little time to get a priest there to do uh, the extreme motion over them and save their soul. So if the priest can't get there in time, you know, if traffic's bad or something, or he has a flat tire or an accident, then that could determine somebody's destiny. That, that seems really ludicrous to us, and we smile a little bit, but it's, uh, it's a sad thing, really. But for a Christian who has met the Redeemer, uh, we read First uh, Corinthians 6. 9, 10, a little bit ago, and I'll read them again. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you know that? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves, with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, And such were some of you, but you are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Forgiven! And cleansed. Ephesians 1 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to, his, to, to the riches of his grace. That means that those sins are taken away. In Psalm 103 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. And they are forgotten. In Hebrews 8, 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And in the 10th chapter, in verse 17, He says the same thing. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. The redeemed. And they have a clear conscience. In 1 Peter 3.21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 9.13-14, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, 
How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Clear and cleanse. Free from guilt. We can remember our sins. We can remember our sinfulness. And we should. But not to be guilt-stricken again, but just to confirm our forgiveness and redemption and to gratefully, gratefully worship Christ the Redeemer. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And yet put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. And He did more for us than just cleanse us and forgive our sins. He delivered us from the power of sin. In Romans 8, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life, that there is life and power in Christ, Spirit within me, that makes me free from the law of sin that binds us and defeats us and keeps us in and we could read other passages related to that. I, I read a, uh, there was a there were a couple of men from Africa that came to uh, Christian life. I think last Monday, no, last Tuesday, I think it was. They were from a little country in Namibia. I think it's a little bit. Just north of South Africa, against the Atlantic coast, and um, this one man shared his testimony. I, I wasn't there, but uh, he he was he had lived a sinful life, a wicked life, drank, smoked. He uh, was married the third time, I think, and. His immoral, and he came to God, and part of his coming to God, he, he hadn't met a missionary. I, I, I don't know all the details, but I remember this prayer that he prayed that God. He was he was smoking. He had a cigarette in his hand, and he said, uh, and somehow he knew that was wrong. That he shouldn't be doing that. Among all the other things he was doing, but this was just something in his finger right there. And he was getting on a bus or a train and was going to go somewhere. I was heading toward home to get a lot of travel. And he said, God, if you are real and if you can save me, I don't, I can't, I'm not saying the prayer right. But if, if you are real, take away this appetite for this cigarette. And um, when he got before he got there, I think the person who was riding with him, a friend, uh, he, he told him, 
what he had done. And he said, well, you still can't, you still have a pack of cigarettes in your pocket. And he did. But he said he just had no more appetite. He said he had no sense. It was gone. No more drinking. But it uh, doesn't always happen that way for people. But it was a powerful uh, testimony to him from God. In closing, I just want to read uh, from Luke. Chapter 7. It begins at verse 36. I'll, I'll not read all of it. But one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to come to his house to eat. And Jesus went. They sat down for their meal, or reclined on the couches as they did. And behold, in verse 37, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touched him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus knew his thoughts. And he answered unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And Simon said, Master, say on. And Jesus told the story about the two debtors, the one that owed 500 pence and the other that owed 50. And they neither had nothing to pay. And the creditor forgave them both. And Jesus said, Which of them will love him most? And Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And Jesus said to him, That's right. That's right. And then Jesus turned to the woman and he said to Simon, See, seest thou this woman? I entered into your house Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. Thy sins are forgiven. 
for, for beautiful, beautiful words. For beautiful words. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But somehow, Simon wasn't catching that. Simon was not catching that. And I think that Jesus was simply hinting that Simon didn't love him like this woman did. And I think Jesus was teaching, and I hope that Simon was picking it up, that his conscience was pricking him. I think Jesus was teaching that Simon's sins were not forgiven. He did not love him. But this woman did. And I hope that I, I trust that our hearts uh, identify with this woman and that we can feel what she felt long ago in Simon's house at Jesus' feet. And that we are often there at Jesus' feet, thanking Him for His great mercy and His great uh, gift, unspeakable gift of salvation to us.